Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. What comes to mind when we say he's a communist? Is it often pejorative, offensive, a slur? But what of the often neglected 100-year history of the Communist Party in the United States? A history that supported American labor, the peace movement, anti-imperialism, civil rights, and defended democracy. Today we interview a fellow who lectures and writes on the subject. And by the way, he's a communist. Hello, warm greetings, Greg and and Tony. And today we welcome Tony Pesanowski, who is the um, president of the St. Louis Workers Society and a prominent author and historian regarding the Communist Party USA. And I'm, I'm really glad to have you on our podcast today. And I will uh, we'll be discussing two of your three books. Uh, one is the uh, book, uh, Let Them Tremble. And uh, that is a, a, a book about a hundred year history of the Communist Party. And then this, the second one is the, bio, the third, sixth biography in this book is a more a specific book about one of the more prominent members, which was Alpheus Hutton and the cancer of colonialism. And uh, so he, here we go, glad to have you. Glad to be here, thank you for inviting me. Good, good. And, and I didn't mention your second book, which I have not read. It's called Faith in Masses, 12 Essays on Various Aspects of the Hundred Year History uh, of the Communist Party. T t give me a little bit about that book before we dive into your others. Okay. Well, Faith in the Masses is a collection of 12 essays uh, by historians, academics, and scholar activists um, who each in their own way, in their own individual essays, address the history, address and celebrate the history of the Communist Party and its contributions over the past 100 years. And so the various essays in that collection uh, look at you know different topics from the desegregation of baseball and the Communist Party's role in that in that campaign. It uh, you know looks at the role of prominent communists like Virginia Brodine, who was a early supporter and leader of the movement for environmental sustainability. Um, we also look at the uh, Charles Ruthenberg, who was the first leader of the merged. Uh, Communist Party in 1920, 1921, uh, who has uh, not gotten much historical uh, recognition um, within communist circles and uh, outside of communist circles. And so these various essays, 12 in total, uh, look at this 100-year history of the Communist Party uh, from these various angles, but they all conclude with the same uh, uh, conclusion, which is that the Communist Party, uh, from all of these different perspectives, helped to lead the struggle for workers' rights, African-American equality, peace, solidarity, internationalism. Um, my essay in that collection 
uh, looks at the role of the Communist Party in the early 1960s and 1970s movements uh, around the uh, student uh, free speech movements, uh, the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement, and the emergence of communist-led groups like the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression and the National Anti-Imperialist Movement with Solidarity in Africa. Right, um, right. And so the, the essays address the history of the Communist Party from a number of different angles. So let's, let's just talk about the Communist Party USA. So it's the CPUSA, Communist Party USA. So it, it's 100 years old, began in about 1919. And it picked up big steam in 1930s, 40s, 50s with its involvement in the labor movement and anti-Jim Crow and so forth. And Greg and I have done multiple um, books on that. And, and well, we don't have we've done a handful of podcasts regarding that specific subject. And then you had the Red Scare and the the horrific purging that went on at that particular time was at 56 or so with McCarthy, right? Well, the initial beginnings of the Red Scare was 48. 48. And and I kind of thought that, well, that's when that's when this all stopped because they they made it so difficult with all of the various uh, acts and legislation associated with that. But you you're you were born you're my son's age you're 40 what are you 44 40, yeah 44 and you picked up and talked about it going through the 60s and 70s and to the current state today and that that's kind of the I mean, the history doesn't stop with mccarthy the history continues but it changes right yes right and, and that's where that's where you you with with this book, let them tremble. You have six biographies from early until you know today, and you tell a story through these six six people, uh, various aspects of the the history of the Communist Party. Tell us about that book and how you how you approach the subject with that. Okay, well, you know my. Well, first, the personalities that are discussed in that book include uh, Arnold Johnson, Charlene Mitchell, Gus Hall, Henry Winston, Judith LeBlanc, and W. Alpheus Hunton. Um, and the main goal of Let Them Tremble was to push the historical narrative forward post-1956. Um, as, as you noted, um, you know, many if not most uh, histories of the Communist Party uh, tend to end in 1956, um, which was you know, one of the uh, hallmark years in the history of the Communist Party with the uh, Khrushchev revelations of the crimes committed in the Soviet Union against the Soviet people and socialism. And so the CPUSA was not immune to the uh, effects of that impact. Um, you know, a, a number of communists led this, left the CPUSA at that time. And so you have this kind of confluence of different uh, factors that led to 
a, a weakening of the CPUSA. So you have starting in 1948, the initial jailing of the top leadership of the CPUSA. And then you have from that point forward, a ongoing pernicious assault on civil liberties where the Communist Party was the main target throughout the late 1940s into the early and mid 1950s, culminating with this uh, uh, announcement by Khrushchev of the crimes in the Soviet Union. And so most histories of the Communist Party tend to end in 1956 as if the Communist Party ceased to be, as if, as if it no longer uh, played any sort of uh, impactful role in the uh, workers' rights, peace, civil rights, et cetera, movements in the United States and internationally. And so my book, Let Them Tremble, forces the historical narrative forward and asks the reader to, you know, ask the reader the question of, well, is that in case, is that really the, the fact? And, and what I found was in doing research on the Communist Party in the post-1956 period is that most of those narratives just do not square with the historical record. The historical record is replete with example after example after example of the role of communists in the post-1956 period providing leadership to the struggles for free speech, civil rights, peace, against political and racist repression, for international solidarity, and the birth of what became known as the constituent groups within the AFL-CIO, which was you know, CLU, uh, the Coalition of Labor Union Women, uh, CBTU, Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, et cetera. And so the main goal of Let Them Tremble, as told through these six biographies, is to push this historical narrative forward post-1956. Good. Start with uh, Arnold Johnson. Why, why, don't we, why don't we discuss that, uh, uh, Pat? Why don't we discuss that? Because I think uh, um, it's very, very important to understand that the, the things that are holding politics back in the United States today and have for uh, 100 years is the twin uh, ugliness of anti-communism and racism. And uh, it, it, the anti-communism anti didn't begin in 1948 and it didn't end in 1956. And I, would, I, I, I uh, appreciate Tony's work, but I think the thing to focus on uh, in the 50s is the repression of the Communist Party, the destruction of the party's uh, cadre and the labor, uh, the, the labor movement. Um, the harm that was done there continues to this day. The, the essential outlawing of the Communist Party uh, didn't just affect the Communist Party and its cadres, it affected liberals. Liberals today are afraid to speak. They're afraid to take a position uh, because uh, the, the residue of anti-communism exists even today. The insanity of some of our politics today, the, the uh, grouplets, the ideological confusions that, that flow today flow out of that, out of knocking, knocking out uh, a poll, a central poll in, in US politics with the harm the, to the Communist Party. And so, I mean, I don't think it's so much the Khrushchev revelations as it was the incredible repression. And I joined the Communist Party in 1975, and I can attest to what Tony said. Um, I remember uh, my first activity was around the uh, 
National Alliance, Wilmington 10 in that defense. It came after the Angela Davis campaign. And there was, there was no one doing that in, in that period. No one was doing that. The party pushed that. The party pushed most of the anti-racist initiatives of that era. Um, uh, TUAD, which was a party uh, created group within the labor movement, which really pushed the labor movement hard. Its absence today, uh, unfortunately, is why we have a labor movement that's in many ways so backward. So, I mean, I think we really need to look at those people. I had the pleasure of meeting many times Gus Hall and, and Henry Winston. These were giants. And I, I really thank Tony for putting this forward. It's, we had um, Tony Montero on talking about Henry Winston, uh, a, a giant figure who's almost lost today. And I just wanna say it's so exciting to know that Tony and others, uh, the black radical tradition that's coming forward today is bringing a lot of these communist leaders to the forefront. What a tradition that's been cut off from the American people. And so just from my perspective, I wanna thank you, Tony, for continuing that as a younger person who didn't know many of these people. I, I knew Charlie Mitchell from the Alliance. Um, what, 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 what they were struggling against, it's incredible the forces that were arrayed against the Communist Party. And yet these folks still per persevered. And I got to know a lot of the older people, old timers or rank and filers who suffered during that period enormously. Their stories should be told. I try to keep those stories alive among my friends. So it is a, it's a rich tradition and we owe a lot to the Tonys uh, and others like him that are bringing that forward today. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, and I'd, I'd like to add one thing, Tony, uh, or Greg, you know, you said the, the wholesale um, uh, condemnation of the party. Well, Tony, you wrote an interesting article just a year ago when CNN reporters compared the, the January, the January 6th, which is a year ago today, they compared that to the communist, the, the communist Party and the Smith Act and, and getting rid of all these subversives. And it was so distorted with such mendacity um, that and that's a main that's a main that's our main stream news. That, uh, that was amazing. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, that that's, uh, you know, so that article appeared, I guess, a few days after the the uh, assault on the Capitol uh, last year, and uh, CNN, uh, you know, journalist wrote this article, and it was based off of some research that some scholars had done at the University of Illinois, I think, um, and they tried to document and map the history of coup attempts, uh, and and somehow or another, this this assault on the civil liberties of communists gets twisted by you know intellectual somersaults into the communist party being the leader of a coup attempt, and, and it is completely outrageous. Of course, we all know that the communist party uh, was the victim was the victim in this in this assault on civil liberties that hundreds of communists were hounded. Hundreds of communists were, uh, you know, denied their civil liberties on the most outrageous of charges, uh, stemming from their understanding of Marxism-Leninism, and so and their internationalist outlooks and relationships to uh, other movements and leaders throughout the world. And so this 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 somersault, this intellectual somersault that took place uh, by CNN was absolutely outrageous. And so what we did was. We began a campaign to 
identify signatories who would be willing to sign on to a letter to CNN uh, uh, documenting how this article was outrageous, documenting how it uh, twisted and, and, and upended facts, um, how it did not square with the historical record. And we ended up getting 40, 50, 60, I don't know, uh, maybe 100 uh, different academics who, who signed on to this letter, and as well as prominent people like, like Angela Davis, who had once been one of the leading figures in the Communist Party and uh, submitted this letter to not only CNN, but also to this uh, coup project group at the University of Illinois. The coup project group, um, I forget the exact name of the organization, uh, issued a statement saying that CNN had actually misrepresented their findings. Um, they still labeled the CPUSA as, as conspirators in some sense of the word. Um, but that, but this group actually came out and said that CNN did, in fact, misrepresent. CNN had to go back and re, re-authored this article, rewrite this article two or three different times. I mean, in what should have been a huge embarrassment for CNN and for the author of this article, um, when we reached out to CNN directly, uh, they, they did not respond. There was no response to our inquiries. Um, and they refused to even acknowledge the uh, uh, history of the Communist Party and its contributions to the struggle for democracy, civil rights, uh, workers' rights, and peace, et cetera, and how this article in particular um, you know, did not square with the historical record. And then we also saw that this article was regurgitated <laughs> hundreds of times by local media networks, uh, local newspapers, uh, you know, regurgitated this nonsense. Um, and that's how, uh, you know, I think that's partly how uh, this, this myth of communists as being coup plotters, as being against democracy, et cetera, continues to perpetuate. And related to that, I watch Fox News sometimes just, you know, you know, because I, I get such enjoyment about how remarkably effective they are as propagandists. So today the major networks are covering the Schumer talking about the January thing and Fox News was just showing loops and loops and loops of people rioting in Portland and calling them anarchist and communist. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, oh my God, I guess you can still get some mileage out of that. But and and trying to make the equivalency that these you know patriots that were trying to correct things in DC a year ago are the same as these kind of nihilist little punk kids in um, in in Portland. So anyway, go 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 back to Arnold Johnson. And speaking of that, you know, such a remarkable defender of the Bill of Rights, and he was. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that. Born in Seattle. Um, well, Arnold Johnson's story is is very, it's pretty interesting. You know, he, he's a personality that uh, came to New York to work at the party national headquarters in 1947 or so. Um, was instantly embroiled in controversy as he and other communists uh, began to feel the early effects of of the Red Scare, and uh, they were banned from speaking on on. Uh, 
college and university campuses there in New York. And so Arnold Johnson's story kind of starts from his early defense of the Bill of Rights uh, in, in 1947, 1948, and Lincoln, the persecution of communists and the persecution of African-Americans and uh, other, uh, other people um, to this assault on the Bill of Rights. And so this chapter in Let Them Tremble really centers on Johnson's lifelong commitment to and writing about, speaking about the defense of the Bill of Rights. And so, um, and then I kind of followed Johnson's career throughout the 1950s and 1960s. And we find that he becomes a, a leader uh, within the party and, and outside of the party in the uh, emerging peace movement, uh, uh, the anti-Vietnam War peace movement, and that the party, though never regaining the numbers that it had in the 1940s, uh, early 1930s, 1940s, still played a very substantial role uh, in the anti-Vietnam War peace movement. And Arnold Johnson at this time was the chair of the party's peace commission. Um, of course, we find other communists who played very important instrumental leadership roles. Um, uh, I don't know if folks have paid much attention to the history of the Fort Hood Three, but you know, two of the Fort Hood Three who were the three first uh, soldiers to refuse to deploy to Vietnam in 1966, I think, um, two of those uh, three were members of the Communist Party. And so that's one example of the role of communists in the early movement against the war in Vietnam. Another example is the work of Herbert Aptekar and his delegation to Hanoi in 1965. And of course, Arnold Johnson was part and parcel of all of these various movements that emerged to fight for peace as the United States government was escalating its attack on the Vietnamese uh, government. And I... I find something, you know, he was, he was then one of the victims of the Smith Act, and um, which is the, it, it's this thought, thought police, just even thinking and discussing Marxism and so forth, uh, put you in the crosshairs where your career and, and um, livelihood could be impacted. And he was one of the first that, um, that, you know, I mean, his career was scuttled by that, which reminds me, I have a, a new hat. Um, it says, um, make Orwell fiction again. And, you know, and to a certain extent, that was what was going on with the Smith Act. Just this, this, this wholesale purge of um, destruction of the party at that time. What are your thoughts about that? Do you see some well, I mean, there, there was this this attempt to destroy the party, you know, as, as I argue, of course, that attempt was only partly successful. Um, but we also find, and, and you mentioned a couple minutes ago, you know, Johnson attended seminary uh, when he was younger and, and had actually had every intention of going into uh, a religious career. And so what we find is, uh, in some of my research on Arnold Johnson and his correspondences throughout that period uh, of the early 1950s and into the mid-1950s, is that he had he continued to have a vibrant 
dialogue and relationship with religious leaders who, many of whom came to the support of Johnson and other communists, despite the repression that was being, uh, they, were, they were faced with. And so I think this is another important part of this history. Uh, yes, there was this uh, ramified attempt to destroy the Communist Party, um, to beat it into submission, yet from quarters that we may not usually suspect came su support. And one of those quarters was the religious community. Huh, that's interesting. Well, Charlie, let's, let's have a little balance though. In, in, in uh, Pittsburgh and in, in cities uh, across the country, the, uh, the Catholic Church uh, organized very actively to destroy the, the left-wing trade union movement. Um, yeah, there was, a, there was a number of uh, uh, clerical people who did support Communist Party and had the courage to stand up, but it was a wave of anti-communism, and the Catholic Church's role in it to be faithful to the to truth, to start truth. We've got to point that out in Pittsburgh. It was Father Rice, ACTU Association of, of Catholic Trade Unionists, who uh, destroyed essentially the left wing and the United Electrical Workers Union, mm -hmm. destroyed it, and, mm -hmm. and that was all through the CIO. They went after them. So. Religion, uh, uh, yeah, they, 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 there were people that came forward, but there were lots and lots of people who attacked the Communist Party. And it wasn't just an attack on the Communist Party, it was an attack on progress. And let's not, let's, not, let's not make any mistake about it. It was an attack on the labor movement. It was an attack on democratic rights. It was a wholesale attack on, on everything that, uh, that had been gained in the 30s, especially in the 30s. Right. right. And uh, today we still haven't even regained all of that that was lost during that period. And right. the lack of a communist party uh, in the labor movement in a strong way is just glaring. Nothing has replaced it. Nothing has replaced it. Absolutely. The impact of Taft-Hartley, the impact of the purging of the communist leadership within the CIO, um, you know, had a devastating impact on the uh, labor movement in the United States. I think if we look at the history of the uh, Communist Party and its role in the CIO, especially prior to uh, the purging of communists, you know, the CPUSA members uh, at that time led a combined union membership of around one million people. Um, that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, and, and oftentimes those unions were the most progressive when it came to diversity, when it came to internal democracy, when it came to transparency and finances, uh, when it came to uh, other questions around seniority and uh, the advancement of, of people of color and women. And so um, I, I agree 100% with that. Uh, I think Arnold Johnson's experience in, 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 in you know, as a party organizer and leader also lends itself to this other perspective that in spite of all of this repression, there were still uh, a, a few people of courage who were willing to stand up and challenge um, uh, this assault. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the, the, the treason of liberals in that era was a critical component and allowed the Communist Party to be devastated in the way it was. Explain, and, explain uh, more about we, that. I, you said the treason of liberals? Is of that liberals, what liberalism, liberalism, liberal, the, you know, the popular front era, which, which people familiar with that history know well, when there was a collaboration between the communists and the liberal community, broad-based liberal community, what people today call progressives. 
And that, as soon as the first shots in the Cold War began, and when the first attacks upon the Communist Party began, they began to run. And first it was a few on the fringes, then it was a wholesale panic by the early 50s. The lib liberals had abandoned the Communist Party, let them, left them to their fate, essentially, and uh, joined the Cold War. And that's the reality. And, uh, you know, I'd like to be nice to them. I'd like to be nice to liberals. But unfortunately, on this topic, you can't be nice to liberals. And if you look around and see today, the lack of a spine among many progressives, among many elements within a Democratic Party, you can trace it right back to that period. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that's familiar with that history. Liberals see, cannot be counted on. We see examples of that with the uh, kind of tension between, and that's, I guess, putting it politely, but the tension between the communist-led Civil Rights Congress and the Council on African Affairs, as opposed to the role of the NAACP during this period. I mean, that's one example of, of this, uh, uh, you know, that you're talking about. And I think that, you know, that, that not only was a disservice to progress in general, but it was also, as Gerald Horn has noted, a disservice to the black community in particular. Um, and so I think that also needs to be studied and, and understood much more broadly. Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate folks that, uh, uh, we're, you know, we're all looking forward to a time when we can bring people back together again and we can have a, a, a strong left socialist oriented movement and, and, and draw allies to it. And I, I, of course, I want to see that. But I, I in, in terms of my respect and regard for the Communist Party tradition, I have to be honest about what liberals have done. I have to be honest about their role in U.S. politics in that period. And more importantly, the, the, the remnants of that, how it, how, it, how it resounds today through all of our issues. And uh, it's important to understand that historically in order for us to get beyond it. It'd be nice if we had just shrug our shoulders, you know, with no reconciliation with that period, but we really can't because we're seeing much of, at a time like today when, frankly, in my opinion, things are falling apart very quickly, we, we cannot, we cannot, we don't have time. We have to reconcile and we have to go forward but we have to understand that period and understand uh, who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, to talk about uh, Charlene Mitchell, African-American feminist. The, the Communist Party did a pretty good job, a very good job of integrating Black Americans into their, um, into their organization and a reasonable job with women. Um, would you say that? Not Very not reasonable. as good, but reasonable. <laughs> Do you mean the party? The party continued to be a largely masculinist organization throughout much of its history. But I think, when compared to other organizations during the time, it was above and beyond. You know what what the other organizations were doing, and so uh, so it's a mixed history. You know, I think there's definitely uh, room for improvement, but. Uh, but when you look at, for example, the history of Charlene Mitchell um, and the party's uh, role in trying to propel forward this issue of Black women communists who ran for president of the United States in 1968. And one of the reasons why I wanted to focus and devote a chapter to Charlene Mitchell was, again, because this 
her her campaign for in 1968 for presidency um, once again challenges this notion of the party's demise post-1956. And so similar to the wildly successful college and university speaking engagements that Gus Hall, Herbert Aptheker, James Jackson, uh, other you know, leading comrades uh, experienced in the early 1960s, similar to that, Sherwin Mitchell and uh, Michael Zagarelli, uh, you know, experienced a similar wave of success in terms of speaking engagements on college and university campuses throughout 1968. Um, of course, their vote total, total uh, was minuscule compared to the major party candidates, um, but that's to be expected living in a capitalist society and the fact that I think they only made it on the ballot in two or three states, and so, um, so to be expected. But I think Sherwin Mitchell's story is really illustrative of this uh, you know, attempt that I wanted to make and that I hope the readers understand, which is again, that the party, the Communist Party continued to exist and continued to try to exert a left influence, a left Marxist influence um, well past 1956. And so Charlene's campaign in 1968, and then just, a year and a half, two years later, you know, the uh, uh, arrest of Angela Davis and Charlene Mitchell becomes the uh, national director of the uh, campaign to free Angela Davis. And then by, after Angela Davis's acquittal and freedom, Charlene Mitchell becomes the chair, founding chair and, and, and continues in that role for a number of years of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And as was noted earlier, the National Alliance uh, took on many campaigns dealing with racist and political repression that no one else during that time was willing to touch. And so we mentioned the William Tintin, we mentioned, uh, uh, I don't know if it was mentioned earlier, but Joanne Little, of course, the campaign to free uh, Frank Chapman. Um, and so you have these, these examples throughout the 1970s of the role of the National Alliance um, that Charlene Mitchell was very much uh, a part of and a leader of. And I think that history has been neglected. It's been uh, uh, whitewashed. It's been, you know, erased from the consciousness of, of most uh, Americans. And so uh, I really wanted to try to tell her story within the context of a challenge in this narrative. Right, right. Gus Hall came to... Seattle in 1962, and there was standing room only. Thousands of people uh, came to see him. And I, I think of the uh, college campuses today and, and how even Bill Maher refuses to, to work them because there's such a anti-backlash uh, with the, the wokeness gone a, a bit amok. Uh, Gus Hall was a, was a pretty prominent fellow during that anti-war movement and the 60s and 70s tell tell us about tell, tell us about him well you know gus hall's history is is really interesting he was quite a personality and had spent many years uh as a organizer with the uh you know swac uh still workers organizing committee and um you know kind of was known for being a, a 
kind of rough and tumble, big hands type of guy, you know, and uh, working class. Um, and then in uh, 1958, I think, uh, becomes the uh, general secretary of, of the Communist Party USA and initiates um, uh, an attempt to rebuild the party after uh, this decade of, of political repression, the McCarthy era, the impact of the Smith and McCarran acts, et cetera. And um, so what we find is in, in 1959, 1960, is the emergence of communist-led groups like the Progressive Youth Organizing Committee. We find uh, the Advanced Youth uh, Organization. You find uh, other, you know, communist youth initiatives, as well as in 1964, the birth of the W.E.B. Du Bois clubs. And so this was all an attempt under Gus Hall's leadership and, and the entire, you know, collective leadership of the Communist Party to rebuild the party among youth and students. Um, and simultaneously, you have this upsurge of, of, of student activism on the campuses um, against the intellectual straitjacket of McCarthyism. And so what was one of the uh, best ways to challenge McCarthyite, uh, 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 you know, straitjacket is to invite communists to your campuses. And so you mentioned this speaking engagement, uh, West Coast uh, tour that Gus Hall did in early 1962. And, it, you know, it's estimated that just in January or February of 1962, Gus Hall himself spoke with at least 20,000 students um, on college and university campuses up and down the uh, West Coast. And so this is a phenomenal, wildly successful, uh, you know, speaking tour, but it's not an aberration. And what we find is, if we look at the historical record, is that throughout 1961, 1962, 1963, and into 1964, that these wildly communist speaking engagements on college and university campuses continued throughout those years, and that the Communist Party accumulatively spoke to, and this is a conservative estimate, accumulatively spoke to at least 100,000 youth and students on college and university campuses during that time. And I use this example of Gus Hall and the Oregon football field that was full of 12,000 students. I mean, can you imagine that today? If a you know communist speaker spoke at a university and it had 12,000 students in attendance, uh, can we? The only other example that I can think of is these mass rallies that Bernie Sanders had right, right. to the elections, and so. Uh, so this was a, an organization that was far from marginal in the early, early and mid-1960s, far from marginal. Um, and so I used the example of Gus Hall's life and his work uh, throughout this period to, to document, uh, again, to challenge this, uh, this narrative that the party, uh, the Communist Party, ceased to be a political force post-1956. Greg, when did you meet Gus Hall? Was that one of those uh, college uh, college? No, 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 I met him when I was in the Communist Party. Uh, when he would come to Pittsburgh uh, from time to time, he was a regular on a, a KDKA uh, radio show. There was a, a liberal here who who fancied himself a liberal, a real liberal, you know. And he he always invited Gus to come, and they would spar. And Gus acquitted himself extremely well. And and call-ins would come, hostile ones, friendly ones, and the, the whole deal. But yeah, Gus. 
Gus, uh, he, he, he was a character and he, he could hold his own. I mean, he wasn't afraid to appear on a, a platform or speak before people. Uh, he just was right on his line and he would push it. And uh, very clear, very, 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 very interesting guy. When he got older, uh, as we all do, uh, he hung on to power maybe a little too long, but, uh, but he, he's responsible, as I think Tony's alluding, uh, to keeping the Communist Party not only going, but growing during that period from, uh, I know uh, I was around a party in the late 60s, early 70s, and there was some growth and we had it. And, and the thing that impressed me most about the party in that period was that a small number of people, it wasn't really a cadre party, it was organized like a cadre party, but a small number of people, let's say 50 to 100 people in Pittsburgh, could have a powerful political impact they could have in a, in a broader, broader politics. With dedication, they would prove to people their sincerity, how hard they would work, and their selflessness. And one of the great tragedies of this depiction of communists in the 50s is these horrors about their plotting and you know the fangs and all this stuff is every communist I ever met, even the ones I didn't like, were selfless. And they had dedicated their life to something. They sacrificed for something. They risked for something. And you could count on them, which I wish I could say today about lots of people and politics. So I mean, through all that, they were just they were the, they were the finest people I ever met. They were the the old timers in particular, the ones that were uh, uh, schooled in the 30s, came out of the working class, was stealed by the McCarthy era, and still stuck with it. They were the finest people I ever met, working class people, black and white, that I ever met. And I, I hope someday to meet people like that again. <laughs> so I hope to. Mm -hmm. We did a show with. Um... Uh, uh, specifically uh, dealing with Henry Winston. Um, and uh, that's the next person on your list. Just a, a, a remarkable, remarkable man. Tell us a little bit about, about him and how you approached his, his works. Well, I, you know, I, I really tried to approach the life of Henry Winston um, primarily through his leadership in the uh, national anti-imperialist movement in solidarity with African liberation, which was founded in 1973 and was a, uh, a program, uh, you know, an organization that was sponsored and led by, by communists. And its main goal was to uh, eliminate, to, to destroy apartheid in South Africa. Um, and, you know, at, at this time, South Africa uh, was, was a, uh, one of the main strategic allies of the United States on that continent. And um, it was the leadership, in part, not, not, not only, but in part, the leadership of Namesol, uh, among others, who helped to break down uh, uh, you know, this, this uh, apartheid regime by organizing domestically to bring pressure to bear um, through divestment campaigns, through you know uh, other political uh, political work, you know speaking at the UN, uh, uh, I think you mentioned uh, Anthony Montero uh, was the leader of Name Soul for a number of years, and you know uh, and others. Um, and one of the things that I found you know most interesting about Winston was his organizational and intellectual uh, ideological leadership of, of Name Soul. You know as 
as I think you know, some people know, he, he went blind while in prison uh, due to trumped up charges during the McCarthy era. Now, he had been in hiding for a number of years. Um, I, I think in 1955, he agrees to uh, submit to the FBI and turn himself in. And he spends the next four years in prison. Eventually a tumor develops in his brain and due to prison negligence, uh, uh, he, he goes blind. And it was only after a worldwide campaign um, that included people like Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, and, and A. Philip Randolph and, and others that, uh, that Winston was eventually was was released. Uh, it was was released by Kennedy, um, and so he you know he he goes to the Soviet Union for a number of years, comes back uh, is seen as a uh, one of the party's leading uh, black uh, uh, intellectuals, ideological leaders of the party, writing on writing about the struggle for African American equality and black liberation, and making the connections between the domestic struggle for equality and the international struggle for liberation. And so out of that, I try to again, move the historical narrative forward and talk about Winston's leadership in, in Namesol um, and then uh, his eventual uh, passing um, in the 1980s. Uh, I think it was in 20, 2012, uh, Angela Davis, Charlene Mitchell and others uh, Jarvis Tyner from the Communist Party USA had a centennial celebration of the life of Henry Winston, where they, you know, spoke about his amazing contributions. And, and I think it's really uh, great that that you guys had uh, Anthony Montero on to speak about Henry Winston's life and his contributions. At some point, hopefully, somebody will do a book-length proper uh, uh, biography of Winston. I, I don't think one exists, at least not to my knowledge. And so for the time being, I guess my chapter in Let Them Tremble is probably the only, uh, uh, you know, close to, a, a, you know, book length uh, history of, of Winston's life. And there's quite a bit that I uh, could not include due to space and, and time and et cetera. So um, hopefully at some point, somebody will write a proper biography. Did, did you ever meet him, um, Greg? Did you ever meet? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, I chaired uh, uh, Daily World, uh, uh, I made a Daily World fundraiser in Pittsburgh, a, a large group of people, uh, several hundred people, and Henry Winston was our, our guest speaker. So I had a chance to spend time with him, uh, more importantly, just to see him, how he operated, how he worked. And I think, uh, you know, we ought to broaden the picture of Henry Winston. He wasn't just a leader of Namesol. Uh, he was that, all the things that Tilney said, but he was a leader for the party. I mean, he was the chairman of the Communist Party and thus often got the spotlight, but uh, uh, Winston really was a strong force in, in, in keeping an even keel in the party in that era and sometimes keeping Gus's exuberance under, uh, under uh, restraint. Um, but that you'd have to, you know, we'd have to talk to some people that were closer to it than I certainly was. But yeah, most impressive, a real, a real, uh, an honor to have been been, been around him, yeah, great honor. And it was interesting when Tony was talking about him, Tony Montero, um, he just was such a kind man, <laughs> you know, such a good, you know, everybody 
spoke of how, how how warm he was and engaging and even after he's blind from being tortured in prison he didn't have bitterness he was a very loving person and that's 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 nice we've talked about uh, you know the labor movement and black liberation and now let's talk about the communists and uh, environmental movements with uh, Judith LeBlanc. Tell me a little bit about Judith. Well, Judith is a really amazing story. And, and of, of all of the communists in Let Them Tremble, Judith is the only one that I, I actually know personally. Um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to know Judith for the past 20 some odd years. And you know, when, when I first met her, she was a leader of the uh, uh, party's uh, cable TV effort <laughs> uh, called Change in America. Change in America was a public access TV show that was initiated by uh, the Communist Party. Um, and in 1999, 2000, which I joined the party in 98, 99. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to really see the the work of Judith as it kind of evolved and how the role of change in America, you know, the party was the party was struggling with trying to figure out what was then called the independent media movement. Um, and so you had all of these independent media centers springing up across the country, whether it was local uh, uh, newspapers that were, you know, left uh, lean in Marxist, anarchist, etc. Uh, all of them published and uh, uh, ran on a volunteer basis. Um, you also had the emergence of, you know, the the uh, World Wide Web, and you know, the internet was becoming a much more predominant thing at the time. But but the party was struggling with how best to approach this question of independent media, and so they they have this initiative called Change in America, and Change in America was really an attempt to be a broad based news show from a working class Marxist perspective. And what they what they tried to do was they would they would film these uh, 30 minute, 20, 30 minute shows. And um, they would take these shows and they would be, you know, the, the videos would be shown uh, on public access TV, but they would also be shown at union halls and union conventions and um, you know, this is a really amazing kind of initiative that the that was taken to try to broaden out the party's reach and the reach of what was, I guess, it was still the People's Weekly World at that time, um, the party's weekly print publication. And so it was an attempt to kind of merge this uh, independent media movement um, with public access TV with working class union hall video shows um, with the print publication of the People's Weekly World. And so um, Change in America existed for uh, two, maybe two years, maybe three years. Um, and, uh, and then of course, Judith moves on to leadership in what was United for Peace and Justice. Um, I think UFPJ still exists, though its role is a little bit different now. And, um, but the United for Peace and Justice uh, came together around the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was an attempt to build a broad-based nationwide coalition for peace. And Judith became the, uh, one of the national co-chairs of United for Peace and Justice. 
and one of the largest, you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, it became the largest peace coalition in U.S. history and was responsible for organizing hundreds of thousands of, of people to march throughout New York City and Washington, D.C., as well as local chapters that would organize their own peace marches and vigils and those types of things. And so um, Judith's role in United for Peace and Justice is really illustrative, again, of the role of communists trying to... Uh, you know, broaden the scope of the movement and to play a role that doesn't necessarily emphasize big C communism or big C communist, rather emphasizing the attempts to build broad-based unity. Um, uh, and then more recently, Judith uh, has become the uh, leader of the uh, Native Organizers Alliance, um, which has been instrumental in, in stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, among other struggles with Native American peoples. Um, uh, Judith you know, kind of cut her political teeth uh, on the uh, uh, Wounded Knee, uh, and she was one of the nice. people who lived at Wounded Knee in, in, in 1973, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and at that time is when she decided to join the Communist Party. And she told me that it was because of the communists that she met at Wounded Knee that she wanted to become a member of the CPUSA. And so, um, you know, said so again, to challenge this historical narrative, uh, this false historical narrative that the Communist Party became a marginal political force um, post-1956. And I thought something interesting, I think it was in your book, Tony, you you were talking about the the county that where Wounded Knee is is like the poorest per capita county in the United States. I mean, the, with the poverty and uh, you know, we just we don't realize how these um, tribes today are still living in horrible, horrible situations. And um, so that's she seems like just quite a remarkable person. Wait. Moving right along, your last one, you liked so much, you wrote a book about him. <laughs> and tell us about Aldous Hutton and uh, his, uh, the, the sixth of your biography, and then your, your book is a deep dive into his works, which is really great. So Thank you. Thank you. Well, Alpheus, Alpheus Hunton, um, came from a long line of, of, of activists, his, his, his mother and father and his sister, all in their own right, you know, activists, uh, well-known activists in their own right. Um, but Alpheus um, was a Howard University professor who in 1936 uh, joined the Communist Party and simultaneously was a leader of what was called the National Negro uh, Congress which was probably the largest black popular front uh, organization of the period um, uh, with, with hundreds and hundreds of coalition members representing millions and millions of uh, African-Americans. And so uh, Alpheus Hunton, in his role as a professor at Howard University and as a leader of the National Negro Congress, um, you know, fought to, uh, you know, just like today, there was instances of police brutality and police murder in the Washington, D.C. area. And so Hunton was one of the 
core leaders of the NNC's campaign to blast Jim Crow out of DC and to hold police accountable for the um, uh, misuse and abuse of police power. Um, oftentimes, uh, many of the African Americans that were murdered at the hands of the police, you know, were shot in the back, very reminiscent of the police killings today um, and uh, Black Lives Matter response to those uh, killings. Um, but then in 1943, uh, Alphaeus uh, decides to leave Howard University, move to New York City, and become eventually become the executive director of what is called the Council on African Affairs. Now, the Council on African Affairs, unlike the NNC, was more of an educational institution. It did not have a mass membership like the National Negro Congress. Um, but what it did was it would partner with the NNC, it would partner with the National Maritime Union, it would partner with other uh, party-affiliated uh, you know, popular front groups and unions to bring international pressure to bear against a racist, uh, it wasn't a, the, an official apartheid state at that time, but against what would become South African apartheid. And so from 1943 till, 1955, Alpheus Hunton was basically the key linchpin in this organization called the Council on African Affairs, which included people uh, as prominent as you know Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, Louise Thompson Patterson, uh, wife of William L. Patterson, who was the leader of the Civil Rights Congress. Um, and so Hunton's story is, is phenomenal. Um, he, he, throughout this period, he works to, uh, he also works with the Civil Rights Congress and was a signatory to the CRC We Charge Genocide Petition. Um, and he was a member of the CRC Bell Fund, um, which, you know, the, the Civil Rights Congress, like the National Alliance 20 years later, um, you know, fought against racist and political repression, but also fought to free the victims of uh, Smith Act, uh, you know, the, the Communist Party victims of the Smith Act. And so uh, as a member of this bail fund, uh, Hunton is called to testify. He refuses to divulge the names of CRC contributors and ultimately spends uh, six months in jail refusing to uh, release the names of contributors to the Civil Rights Congress bail fund. Mm -hmm. um, and that's in 1951. He's, he's jailed in July 1951, released in December. Uh, and then uh, by 1955, the Civil Rights, uh, I mean, the Council on African Affairs uh, tragically becomes a victim of the McCarthy era repression and is unable to continue its work on behalf of African-American equality and black liberation. Um, Altheus, however, doesn't stop his work. Uh, by 1957, he publishes a groundbreaking book, uh, Decision in Africa, Sources of Current Conflict, which was published a decade, 12, maybe 15 years prior to Walter Rodney's uh, classic book, the, uh, uh, How the West Underdeveloped Africa. Um, and so uh, Hunton publishes that book, which W.E.B. Du Bois writes a foreword for. And then by 1960, Hunton decides to relocate to Ghana um, on you know, after 
uh, Du Bois asks him to, to relocate to Ghana to help with the, Afri the Encyclopedia Africana. Um, Hunton spends six years in Ghana until the coup ousts uh, Kwame Nkrumah, and then uh, Hunton and his wife Dorothy come back to New York for just a little while. Then they go back to Africa. They end up in Zambia, where Hunton uh, helps with the ANC, African National Congress uh, Underground Bulletin. He writes a history of the uh, resistance, you know, liberation movements of Africa. And eventually he dies of cancer in 1970. Um, I wanted to really focus on Hunton's life because he has been one of the most neglected, if I, if I can use that word, he really has been neglected in the history of African-American struggle for uh, not only civil rights and equality, but for black liberation in Africa. And so, um, and the book, The Cancer of Colonialism, takes its name from a article that Hunton wrote in 1945 um, for the Communist Party's paper, The Daily Worker. And so what I tried to do with the cancer of colonialism is give a brief history of the impact of colonialism um, uh, and then a, tell a brief biography of Hunton as well as uh, reprint all of Hunton's Daily Worker articles from 1944 to 1946, which was the period in time in which he wrote regular weekly or biweekly uh, columns for the Daily Worker. And and he kind of greased the skids for breaking up South Africa and apartheid, and and kind of he 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 laid the the foundation for what would eventually occur there and and you know that's i think it was in your book but that you know that was just like a concentration camp in south africa you would have white miners and black miners side by side with the black miners making a 15th of what the white miners would make doing the same exact job yeah. and what i found was so interesting in looking at apartheid is the the mental set of the South Africans, you know, they, they, uh, the white South Africans, they just truly felt that blacks weren't necessarily inferior, they were just less developed. They needed to be nurtured. And that is the spirit of your book on uh, colonialism. And uh, that was the whole mindset of colonialism. We're just here to help these poor people and uh, they'll be fine maybe in a, a while, but we need to nurture them because they definitely are lesser than us. I mean, and, uh, lest they come to the wrong conclusion and maybe lean towards liberation and socialism. Like that was part of, you know, coupled with this fear, uh, you know, this, this belief of inferiority was also this fear that, that you know, they may lean towards socialism. They may lean towards liberation movements that were given considerable aid by the Soviet Union and the Eastern European nations. And so, um, you know, that, that is also kind of interwoven into this history of Hunton and the struggle against colonialism that I try to make clear in the cancer of colonialism. Yeah. Tony, how did you become an activist? <laughs> well, um, if we go back 20 some odd years, 22, 23, 24 years, um, I, really cut my teeth as a activist 
at the St. Louis Community College. Um, you know, I, I don't have a degree. I don't have any sort of doc, you know, nothing like that. I never graduated college. I, I only attended a few semesters of community college. Um, but while at community college in St. Louis, um, I wrote for the campus newspaper and was on the editorial board of the campus newspaper. And while I was there, um, we got wind of the fact that the board of trustees uh, hoped to increase the uh, tuition for students by some astronomical amount, you know, 30 or 40 percent tuition increase. And um, so in my capacity as a journalist uh, on the campus newspaper, um, I began writing these uh, scathing articles, uh, students demand no tuition increase. Uh, I'd go around uh, during lunchtime and, and interview students and, and get their direct quotes about how much tuition cost and 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 how it's unfair that the uh, you know the head of the school made so much money but you know they want to pass the the cost on to us as students and that type of thing and then eventually i decided to publish all of the home phone numbers of the board of trustees members um, oh goodness and um, encourage, of course, encourage all the students to call and leave messages demanding no uh, tuition increase. And so we were able to force the Board of Trustees to hold a public hearing on the tuition increase. Um, ultimately, we were unsuccessful. We weren't able to stop the tuition increase. But out of that campaign, I got in touch with a number of people from the Service Employees Union, from Jobs with Justice, from uh, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists and, and other folks who were interested in this kind of confluence between student activism and labor activism in St. Louis. And that's where I happened to meet uh, members and leaders of the St. Louis Communist Party. Um, and, and it was that cadre of Black um, communists in St. Louis who really mentored me and helped to guide my political development throughout the uh, early 2000s. Um, and, you know, I, I became a uh, organizer with the Service Employees Union for a couple of years, and I worked in their communications department. I would travel around the state of Missouri um, doing the various uh, newsletters for the, at that time, three different Service Employees Union locals, uh, two in St. Louis and one in Kansas City that represented, you know, the janitorial workers, uh, probation parole officers, uh, the graveyards, groundkeepers. I mean, I was just going everywhere, uh, talking with regular uh, workers and trying to put their story into the uh, union newsletters that we published. And so um, I kind of went from being a, uh, a muckracker uh, journalist on campus to, to doing the same thing, you know, telling the workers stories for the union. Um, ultimately, I, I moved on to work uh, full-time for the Communist Party here in Missouri, and um, the rest is history. You know, I, this, is a, this is a question for both you, uh, Greg, and you, Tony. I, it's the importance of newspapers, pamphlets. The Communist Party, uh, when you look at it in the, the history of it, it it's this... Um, there's a lot of writing. They did a lot of writing. I guess they, the pamphlet is now the blog or the substack. And if you read them both in the past and currently, I read uh, Greg's blog all the time and the uh, Marxist Linus today that he's, he publishes, 
most of it is not that radical. It's, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's a common sense economics. It's this idea of stopping wealth from going to a smaller percentage of people and having people have a say in their work and organizing and civil rights. And I mean, none of it seems um, too obtuse, too hard to grasp. I don't know, what, what are your thoughts about the importance of pamphlets, newspapers, writing as a cohesive force to support the, the themes of the uh, socialist communist um, movement? Am I right? I think, it, I think it's absolutely imperative that, that we you know, write and publish and argue and um, put those um, you know, ideological perspectives forward if, if, if for no other reason than for ourselves, you know, if so we can document the history of our resistance to the things that we see as being unjust. Um, and, and, but I think it goes beyond that. I think that we can look at, as you said, many of the things that um, communist or socialist advocate for really do seem like common sense. Um, <laughs> they're not that radical if we lived in a rational world. I mean, it's not that radical to not want our earth to be destroyed by pollution. I mean, that's not a radical concept, right? You know, um, at least I don't think that it is. It's, it's, not a, it's not a radical concept to believe in the sanctity of democracy and that African-Americans and women and people of color should all contribute, you know, be a part of uh, democracy to the fullest extent possible, um, you know, LGBTQ community, et cetera. And so um, these aren't radical ideas. Um, and it's really, I think, just it's important for us to be able to document um, and to highlight the history of these ideas, to bring them forward, to show that there's this you know, this continuation, uh, this long, people call it, today they call it the long struggle for civil rights, for example, right? And if we look at the history of the Communist Party from the campaign to free the Scottsboro Nine to the National Negro Congress, to the Council on African Affairs, to the Civil Rights Congress, to the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, to, um, you know, organizing today around Black Lives Matter, you see this, this, this continuity of struggle um, where communists have been in the forefront of and a part of all of these struggles. And so we have to document those things because uh, as Let Them Tremble argues, other people aren't going to document it for us. Right. Um, Tony, this has been a real treat. You are a remarkable person. I learned an awful lot from you. I learned a lot from you. Um, I will link to the books. I encourage everybody to pick up your pick up your books and to follow you. Uh, uh, what's a good What's a good blog link for you? Just your your writings on People's World, or I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a blog. Maybe I should start one. Um, <laughs> um, but I do I do write you know fairly regularly for the People's World. I've been writing regularly for Black Perspectives these past uh, couple of months. Um, I hope to continue to do that. Um, uh, yeah. Good. Maybe I should start a blog. I Well, I will link to also to Greg's blog, which is one of my favorite blogs. And uh, I will, um, that's, that's a good place to get more information too. So thank you so much, Tony. This has just been wonderful and informative and I wish you luck and I want you to um, 
you know, keep up the fight. Thanks, well, thank Tony. you for having me. All right. Thanks, All right. Tony. Keep, keep the tradition alive. All right. Yes, sir, Bye thank now. you. Bye.